0: Go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 28. You know, when we started this back just over a year ago, the plan actually was to break it apart because it can be hard sometimes to spend so long in one particular book. So when we did the book of Romans, we broke it down into three pieces and kind of did some stuff in between it. So that was actually our plan um, when we started, but nobody complained and I was having too much fun. So we just stayed in the book and here we are little over a year later, and uh, it's been a joy. This has been, um, I've studied through the book before, um, but I've never taught through it, so this was a, an adventure for me. I actually thoroughly enjoyed it, found myself being challenged and um, encouraged by the things that we, things that we saw. As we've gone through this book, we've seen throughout Paul's ministry this pattern that he had, and it was that he would always go to the Jews first and then he would go to the Gentiles when he would arrive in a city. If there was a synagogue there, that's where Paul would go first. Generally, it was the opposition that he faced when he got to the synagogue that drove him then, or that became the catalyst for him to go to the Gentiles. That was his pattern as well. First to the Jews, then face the opposition, then go off and begin to focus on the Gentiles. Now, with that, he never excluded the Jews, but the focus would turn the Gentiles. I wanted to turn to Acts chapter 13 just briefly for me as we see, as we see this. Acts chapter 13, when you look at verse 44, Paul had gone to the Sabbath here and we see this. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you have repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And that's the pattern that we saw with Paul. He would often, again, go to the synagogues. First, he would be persecuted, abused, rejected, oftentimes by many of the Jews, not all. It seems that in many of the places, at least a few of the Jews would accept Paul's preaching about Jesus being the Messiah, but the pattern was, more often than not, they would ridicule and persecute and drive him out, and so Paul would turn to the Gentiles. Now, part of the reason Paul probably continued to go to the Jews was because he was convinced that the gospel should be preached to them first, but it was also out of his love for his people. We see that elsewhere. Even in the book of Romans, Paul cries out that his hope is that all Israel will be saved. That's what he says. So even in the midst of the persecution, he would still knock on their door anyway, knowing fully what he was going to expect. But Paul had a love for his people, but he also understood the special role that they held in God's salvation plan. He knew that it was through Israel that God would bless the nations. They were the anchor of the hope for the entire world. That's, in essence, what God told Abraham, that he would bless the nations through him, and Paul understood that. And so we see this interesting dichotomy here of sorts. Paul loving his own people, going to them first, being rejected by them, going to the Gentiles because he knew that salvation and hope was offered to them as well. Listen to what he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek a little bit later in chapter 2, he says something similar. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It's also reflected in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, where Paul says it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to the Jews first. And so that was Paul's plan. That was Paul's pattern. Now, what's interesting about this is Paul was told by Jesus that he would send him to Rome, primarily Gentile region. It's no surprise, though, that Paul would repeat this pattern of going to the Jews first, even though he was being sent to the ends of the earth. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? First, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria... And ultimately on to the ends of the earth. That was a reference to the Gentiles. And so here Paul is being sent by Jesus from Jerusalem, the home of the Jews, to Rome, the home of the Gentiles in many respects. But is it any shock or surprise that Paul's pattern would lead him to still start with the Jews first? Look at Romans, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. Our passage today will be verses 16 through 31. We're we'll finishing up the book. But Acts chapter 28, verses 16, in 17, When Paul entered Rome, he was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and they came together. So Paul begins, when he arrives at Rome, he wastes no time at all. And it says here that he called the leading men. Now, the first thing we see here is that Paul was given a, a fair amount of freedom. He had his own rented home. He lived alone in his own rented quarters. We know that it was for at least two years. Only one guard was assigned to him. However, in verse 20, it appears that he was probably chained to that guard. That was fairly common or typical with prisoners in Rome. We saw that elsewhere when Paul was arrested, when the Jews began to riot, when he first came to Jerusalem, and they began to riot and began to beat him, and the centurion came, first thing he did was he grabs Paul and he chains him to two other guards. That was fairly common. So Paul is in his own rented quarters, given a lot of freedom here, but is still chained. He's still a prisoner. He's chained to a guard. But it also says that he was allowed as many guests as he could take. So he was allowed a lot of freedom to see people coming to his home. And we're going to see how in our study this morning, his house served as as his primary residence for not just living, but for his ministry. Now remember, you know, Paul was used to traveling. Paul would go wherever the Spirit led him. In fact, he would even try to outrun the Spirit in some respects. Remember, at at one point, he tried to go into another location, and the Holy Spirit said no, and set him another direction. So Paul was used to having his freedom and moving about and being able to go wherever the Spirit had led, and now he's confined, but he will not allow that to deter him. He'll have a successful ministry right there out of his own house. No matter where the Lord put him, Paul would serve Christ, and we're going to see that today. So here he is in his old in his own rented place. And you notice the first thing that he does. It says that he called all the leading men of the Jews. Now, this is a term that's used elsewhere, and based on the way that it's used elsewhere, it's a reference to usually the leading Jewish men in the community. It's not a phrase that's used of the elders or the scribes or the priests. The elders, scribes, and priests were like the official Leaders. It might be like we would think of today as your, you know, your, your pastors in your churches. You know, we had a discussion with somebody recently here about, I don't know, it was my sister. Their, um, pastor has resigned recently. And, um, so they're going to look into, basically doing what a lot more churches are doing now, which is splitting that role of senior pastor, typically a senior pastor of a church, especially a larger church, um, functions kind of like a CEO. He runs day-to-day operations, is responsible for hiring and firing, and he's also going to be up there teaching and preaching and all those things. But he kind of functions like a business leader. Well, they're realizing that's not a very effective ministry in some respects, and so they are looking at hiring somebody just to do the teaching and preaching. That's going to be his job. He can focus on that. And they're going to hire an administrative pastor. And so they're going to kind of break these um, responsibilities down. And so when you look at something like what Paul is looking at here, the scribes and and the elders and others, they sort of led the Jewish community in an official capacity. But that's not what Paul calls here. He just calls the leading Jews in the community. It doesn't really tell us why Paul doesn't call the others, but it's interesting to note that Luke mentions only the leading men of the city here, or of the Jews, probably because there weren't a whole lot of scribes or official leaders. And the reason that I speculate that is because there were only about 10 to maybe 30,000 Jews in Rome at this time. There were 4.5 million people that lived in Rome. But there was only an extremely small population of Jews. And part of the reason for that was they had been kicked out. In fact, the Emperor Claudius in AD 41 pretty much threatened the Jews. I'm going to quote from him himself. He wrote a letter to another individual and he said, Otherwise I will by all means take vengeance on them, the Jews, as fomenters of which is a general plague infecting the whole world. He did not have a favorable opinion of Jews and so he pretty much ran them out. Ten years later, he actually issued a decree and said all Jews out of Rome. Would not let them stay. In fact, Luke mentions that a little bit later, Acts 18.2, Achilla and Priscilla, Luke says, were forced out of Rome. That's how Paul met them. And so Rome was not a very friendly place for Jews. There likely wasn't a good structured leadership there, but there was a small Jewish community. So what does Paul do? He grabs the most influential men of the Jewish community there. And he invites them. And that takes us to verse 17 of our passage today. He calls these, letters, or these leaders together. He meets with them on two occasions and does exactly what we would expect him to do, which is to present the gospel to them. Look at verse uh, 17, the second half of it. So he calls these leaders here, and he says to them, Brethren, the second half of verse 17, Brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of Romans. He's going to make four claims in this, and this is the first one. The first claim as he meets with these people is that he had done nothing against his fellow Jews. Now, that's obviously a reference to what had happened throughout much of his ministry through Asia and Judea. Remember the lies that they had spread about Paul? Go back to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verses 19 and 21. Paul arrives at Jerusalem, he's meeting with James, and this is what he learns. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said of him, You see, brother, how many thousands here among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs." That was what the Jews thought of Paul, that he was preaching against Moses. Look at uh, verses 27 and 28, a little bit later. Paul goes into the temple, fulfilling one of his, a vow that he had. He was worshiping in the temple, and look what happens. After the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come! To our aid, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law of this, and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this place. Think about Acts chapter 24 when they brought false charges against Paul, saying all kinds of inappropriate things. Look at Acts chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. He's before Felix here, the Roman governor. The lawyer stands up, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing, for we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews. That word he used there was plague. He was a disease, is what they claimed. A real plague, a pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That was a reference to Christians. And so, Paul, as he meets with these Jews in Jerusalem, or, I'm sorry, in Rome, first thing he tells them is, look, I didn't do anything against my fellow Jews. And that's going to be important as he goes through this. Because that's the accusations that have been leveled against him before this. He doesn't know what they may or may not know at this point. So it could be that as he steps into this environment and he invites them to come, that they already know about Paul and they already have these preconceived ideas. It makes sense that he would say, look, if you've heard of anything, (laughs) that's not true. So, in spite of there being no claim and no proof to their claims, Paul repeatedly denying them the Jews still delivered him over. We know that, and so Paul, that's why he's ultimately here. he's going to tell him that in the end. So the first thing he does, he claims that he had done nothing wrong against his own fellow Jews. The second claim that he makes is found in verses eight, verse eighteen um, he had done nothing against Rome, that was the second accusation made by the Jews. look at verse eighteen, and when they had examined me. They were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. He's talking there about the accusations made against him by the Roman or by the Jews as a Roman. They had done their best to portray Paul as an enemy of Israel, an enemy of Rome as well. Go back to Acts chapter twenty five. Look at verses seven and eight. After Paul arrived, this is Paul now before Festus, another Roman governor. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Paul basically was defending himself because the Jews had accused him of being an an enemy of Caesar. You remember as we went through that, that the Jews tried all kinds of things. They wanted to assassinate him, so they tried that twice. But then also, if that didn't quite work, their plan was we'll accuse him of being an enemy against Israel. And, you know, Rome wants to keep the peace with Israel. So if we've got this guy riling up Israel, he might be one of those zealots that might attack Rome. So, you know, maybe they'll let us have him and we can put him to death. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing was if that doesn't work, we'll just accuse him of being an enemy of Rome and Rome will kill him. So they had all these irons in the fire just in case one didn't work out. And so Paul, as he's here before the Jews... And Rome says, I wasn't an enemy against Rome either. In fact, we know that the commander in Jerusalem, the two governors, Festus and Felix, that he he was tried by, and even King Agrippa, all of these rulers were convinced that he hadn't committed any crime against Rome. So Paul's simply speaking the truth. So he starts out with these two claims. I'm not an enemy of Israel, and I'm not an enemy of Rome. The third claim was that he was forced to appeal to Caesar because the Jews objected to his release. So why is he here? Look at verse 19. But when the Jews objected, objected to what? My innocence, my claims of innocence. When when they wanted to release me, when they said there was no grounds, verse 18, to put me to death, the Jews weren't happy with that. So they objected. So as a result, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, he says in verse 19, not that I had any accusation against my own nation. Remember, Paul was forced to appeal to Caesar because he didn't believe he could get a fair trial from Festus. Both Felix and Festus were men who were heavily influenced by the crowds, and they knew that their primary job as governors was to keep the peace. And so they would try to keep that peace any way they could sometimes. So they would appease to the Jews, or they would try to appease the Jews. And so Paul knew that he wasn't going to get a fair trial, so he does what A Roman citizen could do, which was to appeal directly to Caesar. They could do that even before the trial took place. So Paul says that I appealed to Caesar, not because I have something against my nation. He says here, it's not because I have something against Israel. Oftentimes, an appeal up to Caesar would be to bring an accusation against your enemies. In other words, you know, the best defense sometimes is to attack your enemies. We we see that oftentimes when somebody goes to court, don't we? You know, where a defense attorney maybe will twist it around. Attack those that are bringing the charges. And so Paul says, I appealed to Caesar. The reason I'm here in Rome is not because I have anything against Jews, but because they objected when I was found innocent. The fourth claim he makes actually now gets to the crux of the matter. Look at verse 20. He was a prisoner for one reason and one reason only. And that was the hope of Israel. Look at verse 20. For this reason, therefore... I requested to see you and speak with you for I am wearing this chain for the sake and the hope of Israel. That is the heart of the matter for Paul. When he looked at why he was sitting in a rented house as a prisoner, chained to a guard, locked up to where he didn't quite have the freedom to travel around and carry out the great commission to which he had been called, he saw that as I'm here for the hope of Israel. That's the primary reason. He could probably give any number of reasons. But that was the one he chose to focus on. The hope of Israel was God's promise of resurrection through Christ. And this is something that Paul repeated throughout his ministry. Remember, I'm going to read read words from Acts 23. When Paul was before the Sanhedrin, remember, he caused a little bit of a debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He shouted out, Brethren, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. When he was before Felix... He affirmed this belief. And he said that everything that he had done was in accordance with the law and the prophets. And then he said this, Having a hope in God which these men, the Jews, cherished themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That's when he was in Acts chapter 24 being tried before Felix. When he got before King Agrippa, a Jewish leader out of or that oversaw all of Judea on behalf of Rome, Acts chapter 26, verse 6 and 8. He says this, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? So that was a hallmark of Paul's ministry. It was this hope that Paul desired to share with the Jewish leaders in Rome. Verse 20 says, For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and speak with you. What? The hope of Israel. And what is the hope of Israel? The resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. That's why God sent him. Isn't that why we exist today? Why did Jesus leave us here? Why not save us and suck us up with a giant heavenly hoover? Take us home? Well, Jesus told us, beginning of Acts, how we started all of this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. We're here to witness the hope, not just of Israel, but our hope as well. We live here for a small number of years compared to eternity. What is our hope? My hope is not just that I might have a nice life and then die. Many, that's all they have. I've been told that by people. Nothing Nothing more exists beyond this. It's just to enjoy life. That's it. Scriptures tell us elsewhere that our only hope is in this world. It's no hope at all. Our hope is the resurrection of Christ, that we might be raised with him. And so Paul, as he's before these Jewish leaders, reminds them that I'm here for one reason. It's to talk to you about the hope that God promised our great nation and all people through Christ. Now, fortunately... These leaders hadn't heard any negative reports about Paul, so he's started with a clean slate with them. How refreshing that must have been for him. Remember, he had, as he had gone into different cities, sometimes the Jews from the prior city would come and chase him down. That's dedication. I'm sure Paul got tired of it at times. This must have been refreshing. Look at their words in verses 21 and through 22. But they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, Nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. They immediately make the connection between Paul's hope of resurrection. Now, notice, I don't believe Jesus has mentioned, or Paul has mentioned Jesus anywhere in this text so far. He simply mentions the resurrection, and that is enough for them to think about this sect. Elsewhere, they're called the sect of the Nazarenes. Here, they're just referring to it as a sect, but it's a sect that's come to their attention, and the only thing they know about it is that it's spoken against everywhere. It's not a popular thing. Now, what's interesting is when Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome, one of the reasons he did it, in fact, the the, the primary reason he stayed it was because the Jews got all inflamed and caused a lot of trouble over their concern over Crestus, which most believe is a reference to Christ. And so here they are in Rome. Most people had been kicked out of Rome at this point. They're still there, a very small number of them, probably because they had been allowed to come back in, but most Jews would have been very cautious going back to Rome. So they had heard that this resurrection is connected to these Christians because that's what they preach. How would you, boy, wouldn't you just love to be known for that? If what all of the people around you knew is that you believed in the hope of the resurrection and that's the thing that stuck out in their mind. And that's what happened in the early church. So here these Jews are. We've heard about this. We've heard about this resurrection. It's related to those Christian people and uh, it's spoken against. However, we'd like to hear your input on this, Paul. We'd like you to explain to us your perspective. And so that's what they ask him to do. So that was the first meeting that Paul had with them. So at this particular first meeting, they set a time to come back for a more formal time of sitting and listening to Paul. And that we find in the next few verses here. In the second meeting, Paul takes opportunity then to actually preach the gospel to them, to lay out the hope of Israel. Look at verses 23 through 29. We'll go ahead and read all of those. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large. Numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, for both from the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some of them were persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word to them. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, you will, hear, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears, or, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen." When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. So what we find here is that the Jews this time, they actually come to Paul, they're eager to learn, they're interested, they bring, it says, large numbers. And so Paul spends the entire day laying out his case for Jesus. It says that he solemnly testified about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. You know, it's interesting because there are many ways to share the gospel, and we talk about planting seeds and and other things, and... Paul was not just content to tell them about Jesus. He did what he could to persuade them, to convince them, to make his argument. It says that he did this by using the word of God. Notice it says here that he went to the law and the prophets to make his case. We have the New Testament, another tool. Paul had just access to the Old Testament and his own prophetic statements. But he relied heavily on the scriptures to make his argument. I think we need to as well. I think, unfortunately, too many Christians abandon the scriptures because they think they're offensive. You know, it's what God has given us. And what, what um, Psalm 19 tells us is that it's able to make wise the simple, to be able to convict the heart. It gives wisdom. You know, it's able to divide spirit and soul. It is the sword of the spirit that convicts people. So somebody who does not believe in Christ can be sitting here, hear the word, and be convicted and become convinced. Not because of some fancy argument that's made because the Spirit of God speaks to them through the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And so Paul uses the law, Moses and the prophets, to make his argument. Notice it says that he did this from from morning until evening. That's a long time, folks. I kind of jokingly think of that as it wasn't your daddy's four spiritual laws. I got saved in college. Somebody sat me down with the four spiritual laws. I think it's a great tool. But it gives a very simple explanation of the gospel. Not a bad thing. That's not what Paul was doing here. He spent a whole entire day with these people, digging. He gave them a lesson in the scriptures, and they were willing to listen. But notice their response in verse 24. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others did not believe. So Paul goes to the prophet Isaiah and essentially says, this is the history of Israel. You have hard hearts. You have your eyes kind of open, but you're not really seeing You have your ears kind of open, but you're not really interested in listening. And so what has God done? He's taken the message to the Gentiles, because the Gentiles will listen. The bulk of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years has been Gentiles, folks. That makes up the bulk of God's church, the body of Christ. Why? Because even to this day, many Jews, most Jews, have hardened their hearts, have closed their ears, have covered their eyes, and they're still in rebellion. Not all, there are plenty of Messianic Jews, The bulk of the first century church was Jews. But since then, it's been Gentiles. So Paul, as he challenges these men, in many respects, gives them a warning. This is what Isaiah said about you, which serves to warn them. As they would leave, maybe those words would ring in their ears, because it was one of their own prophets, Isaiah. It wasn't Paul that said it. It was one of their own prophets. So maybe that would ring in their ears as they left. So now, what that does, that takes us to the very end of the book of Acts, The last thing that Luke records about Paul's journey to Rome is that he spent the final two years in Rome here, in his own rented house, preaching the gospel to all who would listen. Jews probably, as well as Gentiles. Look at verses 30 and 31. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The last thing we learn about Paul's journey to Rome is that he spent, again, two full years living in this own rented house. Again, it wasn't what he was accustomed to. He's accustomed to traveling. But you know, it wasn't going to shut down his ministry. Verse 16 said that pretty much he was allowed to stay by himself, but he was able to then see people, whoever came. So during those two years, he was welcoming all who came. And said That word welcoming is actually a word that refers to receiving somebody eagerly and with gladness, excitement. So imagine that. Here Paul is in his own rented quarters and people are coming to him. And every time they come, he opens those doors. He's eager to see them, eager to talk to them. That's what's on his heart and mind. Normally, Luke used that word to, again, warmly receive, be excited when people show up, and that's the way that it's being used here. Notice the word all there is an important word too. Paul was willing to talk to anybody who came to him. Now here's what's interesting about that. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1 with me. Who might some of these people then that would come to visit Paul? I imagine there were probably some other Jews because remember some of the Jews that had visited Paul here came to that second meeting. Some of them were persuaded. It's likely that they went on And talked with others who probably then came to visit Paul. But also, there would have been plenty of Gentiles. It was a Gentile city. But something interesting takes place. Look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 13. We'll start at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Notice what he said. My situation here in Rome, being locked up and confined to my own quarters, I can't travel, but guess what? People come and see me. And it's worked out for the greater progress of the gospel. How is that at God turning the tables? Lock him up! All right. Use it to advance the gospel. But notice what he says So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become, and here it is, well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You know what the Praetorian Guard was? They were the elite of the elite. They were the ones who guarded. The emperor himself. And so Paul says that the gospel, the cause of Christ, had become well known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard. How's that for ministry? These were important people. Paul chained to a guard. Gee, where do you suppose that message, or how do you suppose that message got from Paul's home to the Praetorian Guard? Likely, I'm going to speculate here, I think it's fair, It may be that maybe that guard that Paul was chained to for two years kind of heard some things occasionally. Maybe some of it made sense. Even when people weren't there and Paul's chained to the guard, do you think Paul gave the guard an opportunity not to hear the gospel? Now again, speculation. But somehow the whole Praetorian guard heard the gospel. It was well known. It means they didn't just hear it, it means they likely understood it. Maybe they accepted it, maybe they didn't. But it was well known. One other thing. Look at chapter 4, verse 22. It doesn't stop there. This almost gives me chills. Chapter 4, verse 22. Paul's greeting the Philippians. He's sending greetings along. Notice what he says. All the saints greet you. Where? Greet you from where? Greet you from Rome. All the saints greet you, people in Philippi, from Rome. But notice this. Especially those of who? Caesar. That's the emperor. Especially those of Caesar's household. Now, put that together. All the saints, those are believers, all the saints, especially those saints in Caesar's household, send you their greetings. So here Paul is, welcoming all who are willing to talk to him, Jews, Gentiles, maybe members of the Praetorian Guard, possibly even people from Caesar's household came to visit Paul. How does that happen? Well, Paul says it was, or Luke here says it was, because Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ during that two years. Trying to get your head around the nuances and the meaning of the phrase "kingdom of God" is a task. The simplest explanation I've ever heard of it is refers to God's people and God's place under God's rule. That might do it. I'll give you a more complicated explanation of what it means to preach the kingdom of God. It refers to God actively reigning in human history in both past, present, and future, through his son, Jesus Christ, for the purpose of redeeming mankind and ultimately establishing the new heavens and new earth. Let me repeat that because I think it's important. When we talk about God's kingdom, what does that mean? It refers to God actively reigning in human history, both in the past, present, and the future, through Christ, for the purpose of redeeming mankind, saving us, and ultimately leading us into eternity by establishing a new heavens and a new earth, where we spend all of eternity. That's God's kingdom. That's what Jesus preached. So as Paul preached the kingdom of God, notice that he did it while preaching about Christ, and the reason is you cannot separate the two. There is no kingdom of God without Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's ultimately the king. The Old Testament promised that. Someone would sit on David's throne, a descendant of David, and his, ter- his kingdom would be eternal Why? Because he would reign in God's kingdom. And you notice here, the very last thing we see here is that Paul did this. He preached about God's coming kingdom, about Jesus Christ and how the two went together. It involved the resurrection of the dead and the hope of Israel. And notice verse 31, that he did all of this with boldness, or in some of your translations, openness. The word is more closely associated with boldness, courage. He did this with boldness, and without hindrance, Isn't that really what it's about? One of the things we need as a church today is more boldness. We've talked about this before, the compromise in the American church. We seem to back away from those issues that cause tension, that make us look like fools. Paul didn't worry about that, boldness. So what's our takeaways from this? The first thing that comes to mind is really what we've seen through the whole book. The book of Acts records the beginning of Jesus' fulfillment to do something that he promised. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 we're going to start at verse 17 Jesus said to him talking to Peter here blessed are you Simon Barjona because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you reveal what? well that he's the Christ the son of God but my father who is in heaven revealed it to you I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock what's the rock? that's not Peter the words are similar The rock he's talking about is the declaration that Peter just made. that You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says that upon that, upon that rock, that foundation, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. That's the promise Jesus made, was that I will build my church. It's exactly what we've seen in the book of Acts. It started with Pentecost where the disciples came together, they were praying, looking for direction from God, they were a little bit bewildered maybe, they had just been told by Jesus, you will be my witnesses, here in Jerusalem, that's where it will all begin. And then this rushing wind shows up, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and by the end of the day, thousands of Jews had come to Christ. Jesus began to fulfill the promise of, to build his church almost immediately after his resurrection. You know what? That's no less true today. If we look at the book of Acts, we see how no matter what the persecution was, no matter what the enemies did, no matter how hard they tried to shut down the spread of the gospel, what happened? It thrived. It didn't just barely limp along. It thrived. Even Paul's ministry. How many, I mean, you look at the list of things Paul suffered, beaten, bruised, almost put to death. The guy suffered multiple shipwrecks. We know of only one in the scriptures here, but he mentions being in the water many times. He's run off. He's, you know, and yet look at Paul's ministry. In spite of the attacks against him, in spite of the attacks against the church, it thrived. As they say, them's the facts. You know what? That's true today, folks. It really is. If you think about it, we are in unprecedented times. We've, referred, or we've mentioned this many, many times. Here in America, it's getting more and more difficult because the opinions have changed. Many don't like Christian opinion. Many don't like what we say. Many don't like what we do. It's getting more and more difficult here. It's been happening in many parts of the world for a long time. In fact, just yesterday, I learned about China shutting down a fairly large Christian online ministry. They just shut down. Why? Because that's what China is doing. And yes, that's happening in many parts of the world. But if we learn anything from the book of Acts we've learned that that does not stop Jesus from building his church. And that is true today. The gospel is being sent into places in this world that it has never gone before. It's having an impact like it's never had before. In fact, we are seeing around the world right now an explosion in the church. And it's in places like Indonesia. It's in places like Africa. In fact, the church in Africa, there are more Christians there now born-again evangelical Christians in Africa than there are in the United States. The gospel is exploding in parts of the world in spite of persecution growing. In fact, Open Doors continues to publish all kinds of data. Just 30, 40 years ago, they figured that about about 40 countries in the world were actively persecuting Christians. Now that list is up in the 140s. But in spite of that, people are getting saved. Many of them have to do it underground. In North Korea, they go out in boats in the middle of the, middle of the lake, two and three and four people at a time, just so they can worship together. Make it look like they're fishing. But the reality of it is, Jesus is still doing today what he promised he would do, and we saw that in the book of Acts, and that is our pattern. Why is it there? To give us hope. If we put our focus and our eyes on all the stuff that's happening and the stuff that's happening here, we would lose hope. But the book of Acts tells us, uh-uh, Jesus Christ will build his church. But what he needs are faithful people, much like the Apostle Paul, much like that early church, who are willing to do what Paul did, which is to continue to preach the kingdom of God and teach Jesus Christ with boldness. There may be some hindrance, but God will open the doors, right? Turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Why is it working out this way? We saw this before. We'll just read this briefly here. Whoops. I know that Jesus is still building his church not just because of what we see happening in parts of the world where we see millions of people still coming to Christ in spite of the severe persecution, but we also know Jesus is still doing it because he hasn't come back yet. That's a great indicator. He didn't stop and forget about us. Look at what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Whoops, wait a minute. I'm in 1 Peter, it didn't look right. 2 Peter chapter 3. Starting at verse 3. Know this first of all. In the last day mockers will come, and they're mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He's referencing the judgment there. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In other words, God is preserving this right now because ultimately it will be judged. But he's preserving preserving it for a purpose. Look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow. In other words, he hasn't come back yet, not because he's slow, so he's not slow about his promise to come back, as some count slowness, but it's because of his patience towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away, and with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord or coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat but according to his promise we are looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells what's the point of that Peter's basically saying Jesus isn't delaying his return because he's a slacker when it comes to his promise he's patiently wanting more people to repent and come to him. He's still building his church. That's why he's delayed for 2,000 years. I don't mean to be crass, but the more, the merrier. God wants to populate the new heavens and the new earth with members of Christ's body. So he's patient. He's enduring what's happening in this world as they thumb their nose at him. So I think the first thing that we can take away from this is that Jesus Christ is doing exactly what he promised he would do. He's continuing to build his church. And the book of Acts offers us that hope. Second takeaway, this one comes to mind specifically about Paul himself. After he had endured everything that he endured, all the pain, the discomfort, the torture, the imprisonments, and ultimately his beheading, Paul remained steadfast in testifying about Jesus Christ, about fulfilling the mission that Christ had given to him. What Paul faced was brutal. No man would ask for that. Yet he never lost hope nor the courage to fulfill the mission that Christ had called him to. The last thing we see him doing in Acts is sharing his faith while he waits to be tried by Nero. I'm sure he could have spent that time better preparing for that time before Nero, don't you think? But Paul walks in the door to Rome and says, can you get a message out to the leaders of the Jews here? Have them come and talk to me. You can tell where his heart and mind was. We don't really have much information about what happened to Paul after this because the scriptures are silent, so we have to rely on church history. Church tradition holds that he was released around A.D. 62 after two years. From there, some believe that he went to Spain. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, that's what he said he wanted to do. He wanted to go to Rome and then on to Spain, and many believe that he did. There's some evidence of that. There's evidence that he went to Crete, the island of Crete. He met Titus there, ministered to Titus for a little while. It's believed he then went on to Ephesus, which is where Timothy was. Many others think that there's a trail that takes him from Macedonia through Philippi and through Berea and Corinth and sort of on, and so that Paul continued some missionary journeys there. Ultimately, we know that he was arrested once again. He was imprisoned in the notorious Mamertine prison in Rome, which is a pathetic, it's basically a hole in the ground mixed with sewage and everything else. That's where Paul spent the last few days of his life. We know that history tells us that he was ultimately beheaded because of his faith. But... I'm going to close with this. With all of that, I want you to read with me Paul's words to Timothy. How did he look at his life? Did he have any regrets? 2 Timothy chapter 4. Some of the last words that Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4 starting in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That's a reference to an Old Testament sacrifice. In the time of my departure, has come. Paul knew he wasn't getting out of prison. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, meaning I've finished what Jesus Christ commanded me to do. And I've kept the faith. Why is that important? Elsewhere he had written to Timothy that um, these words. It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself, that kiasic structure that basically says this, that you died with him and so you will also live with him. That's assured. However, if you endure with him, you will also reign with him. That's the reward. But then he says, but if you deny him that reign, or if you deny him, if your faith stumbles in some respects, you won't reign with him, but he will remain faithful to you. But you may not receive the rewards. And so... Paul's reference here to I've kept the faith is more than just simply saying I still believe in Jesus. What he means there is that he has not denied Christ. He has stayed faithful to him and ultimately he is awaiting his rewards, his reign with Christ. And so Paul says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Therefore, and here's the key in verse 8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. All those who have waited and looked up, eager in anticipation of his return. What do we learn from Paul in this? I think we learn from this that we too should be like him. You know, I think when I look around, there's so many things that can distract us. There's life. We get caught up in just building the best life we can have. You know, who is it, Joel Osteen? Your best life now! You know, if that's all that Christ offered, how pathetic is that? It really is. That's not why Christ died. You may be fortunate enough to be blessed in this earth, but Jesus himself told us we need to be careful. Those who have received their rewards in this life may not receive them in the next life. So where should our focus be? Paul lived his life in dedication to Jesus Christ because he believed that Jesus Christ offered hope for Israel and for every human to walk the earth. And so Paul was committed to that. And so he was willing to put up with the suffering, the discomfort, living one day without knowing where his next meal was going to come from and the next day having more than he needed, traveling from city to city in spite of the fact that he knew that the Holy Spirit said, Every city you go into, here's what awaits you, Paul. And yet he went to the next city anyway. When Jesus told him he would go to Rome, Paul says, okay, I'm going to Rome. When nothing seemed to be going right, Paul still made his way to Rome. And what's he do when he gets to Rome? He starts talking to the Jews and anybody that would listen about the hope. So if there's anything for us to walk away with from our study of the book of Acts, I think it's those two things. Jesus is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He's going to build his church. No matter what happens, no matter what we face, no matter how bad it gets here, Jesus Christ is going to build his church. Amen to that? But we have a role in that, much like the Apostle Paul. We are his witnesses. We need to get our focus off of this life and put it where it really begins, which is in the next life. It doesn't mean that we don't have things to take care of here. We are in this world. We should live in this world, but we are not of this world. And so we are witnesses, folks. Some of us will be teachers and evangelists. Some of us will not be, but nonetheless, we are all witnesses. So let's do the best we can and trust the Holy Spirit to help us to do that, but to always be willing to give an answer for the hope that's within us. Let us ask God to use our lives as a reflection of him to give us opportunity to share the gospel. Let's ask Jesus to help us, to help him build his church.